this sermon that even though it was sort of all over the place and kind of, you know, here, there, and everywhere, you thought, man, that was surprisingly helpful and encouraging. And even though it didn't, you know, stick to any of the rules, it was, it was good. And then maybe you've heard that kind of sermon that's meandering, chasing butterflies through the park, and you're like, that was all over the place, totally unhelpful, don't know where he was going, don't know where he got that stuff. This sermon is going to be one of those two uh, kind of uh, kind of a sermons, and we'll find out uh, in, the, in the near future here just which one it's going to be. I don't have a particular text. I'm going to handle this topically, and we will do a lot of flipping around in the Scriptures as we uh, handle this subject. And, uh, but I, I do think the subject is very important, and the subject we're going to be talking about is sending. Sending. And really, I uh, Clint has done a great job. I'm assuming Clint laid out the topics and uh, just moving us from the gospel, right, uh, to, to conversion. And then from conversion to preaching. And then if all had gone according to plan, uh, then to the public square. And then to revival. And uh, now to sending. That is, churches raising up leaders and sending out more churches. There, there could be a tendency in a day and age that's as dark as ours, to sort of hunker down and, and to not be on the offensive. But I, it's, it's been said way too many times, but, but we win! Jesus conquers all. He, he takes a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And, and even though uh, I, I can, I'm sympathetic with the idea of a, of a post-Christian culture, I, I do just want to put this out there. We've been marching forward for 2,000 years. And even though today is as dark as it is, the Gospel has touched art, education, politics, family. It's just, it's just everywhere. But when, when the culture uh, finds out about uh, uh, one of these scoundrels, who's, uh, who was the guy with the island who's using all kinds of girls? Epstein. And the whole culture goes, that's wrong! Don't you realize you're dealing with a culture deeply affected by Christianity? That's not what they say in a Middle Eastern culture full of harems. That a man with a bunch of young women all to himself is wrong. That's not the response. We're in a culture that though it's losing ground right now, is deeply saturated with Christian ideas. And we ought not to give up on what our forefathers have gained. And we ought not to give up on what Christ is advancing. And so we want to be sending out more and more leaders to plant more and more churches to see the gospel advance more and more. I think something like in the first 30, my, my Baptist history notes are failing me right now, but in something like the first 30 years of Baptist history, they planted 633 churches in England. God can move. He can spread His Gospel very quickly. And we need to be aware of that and encouraged by it. So I want to speak to you in this session about sending. And let me just begin by praying. Father, would You please send out laborers into the harvest for a great ingathering of souls, planting of churches, and advancement of the Great Commission. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I want to speak to you about sending. And I want us to think about the great call on every local congregation to be a sending church. And I want to speak to you about sending what we could call apostolic missionaries or apostolic church planters. And I want to think with you about sending in three ways. Quickly. First, I want to paint a picture, and here's where it will be kind of all over the place and meandering, but I want to paint a picture for you of, of what things looked like in the New Testament as churches were being planted and strengthened there in the record we have right in front of us in the New Testament. I want to look under the hood of the New Testament, if you will. I don't want to focus on the doctrines being taught. We've done that, and that's essential. I want to focus on how these doctrines were spreading, how they were forming communities, how they were forming churches in all the different cities of the ancient world. Second, what I want to do is, after we've sort of gotten a bit of a, a scan of primarily what's happening in the book of, Act, book of Acts, I want to break that down into particular principles of, of what we might learn 
from what we've observed. And then third, after we've surveyed the New Testament and walked through some principles, I'm going to share just some things that have happened at the church I pastor in, in Louisville, Kentucky, Emmanuel Baptist Church. And my hope is uh, in, in sharing our example is uh, not uh, to um, put us up as uh, the a pinnacle or anything like that. I pastor Emmanuel Baptist Church, so I happen to be uh, deeply aware of her flaws. And so I don't mean that, but I don't know about you. I find it very profitable to, to hear how other people are doing things. And just, I don't have to, you know, you don't have to put on Saul's armor. You know, you don't have to take, take anyone else's ways of doing things. But I find it very helpful to, to hear how uh, different churches are practicing and moving. And it just encourages me and strengthens me to then to apply it in my own context. So, the first thing I want to do is I want to sort of survey the New Testament and specifically the Spirit's work in starting churches. I want to look with you at the Spirit's work in starting churches. So first, we see the Spirit mightily at work in the inspiration of the Holy Scriptures. The Spirit inspiring the Holy Scriptures, starts ascending movement. The, the Spirit, in, in recording the Scriptures for us, births ascending movement. So think about it. It was Jesus who said it, but it's the Spirit who inspires it and puts it in Holy Scripture, saying, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. If all we had in the New Testament on sending and advancing the Gospel was this verse, we would have enough. Because you notice here that what we have is less individualistic than we often think. We often read the Great Commission in very individualistic terms. I should go therefore into all the nations and I should make disciples. But we have to remember that it's originally given to the apostles who are going to be the teachers and they are told, go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. So it's these teachers are going to go out and do this task and it's going to result in benefits to a people. Go therefore and make disciples Pulls, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And so you really have right here this band of teachers being commissioned to gather in what will ultimately be churches. I mean, what do you call a group of baptized people who try to listen and obey everything that Jesus commanded? You should get, a, you should get the Bible if you can answer this one. A church who said it just in case you would decide that's the rules for how that Bible gets distributed. <laughs> so uh, anyway, the Holy Scriptures call us to this work of teaching, baptizing, and promise us the presence of Jesus in the midst. So the first movement of the Holy Spirit, commissioning, ascending, commissioning a, a, a church planting movement is the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The second is the power of the Holy Spirit the power of the Holy Spirit to make churches. Remember Acts chapter 2, after waiting for a period in Jerusalem in the upper room, the New Testament church was filled with the Holy Spirit. And the immediate effect of the Spirit's filling was the empowered preaching of the cross. That's the first thing the Spirit moves a man to do. A man is filled. 120 people are filled with the Spirit. The leader preaches the cross. What happens? Pardon me? 3,000 people. Can you, who was the unspiritual guy counting? Apparently the Spirit thought that was important. So 3,000 people are baptized and they devote themselves to the apostles teaching the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Without any instructions, there's almost this immediate instinctual instinct in the people of God who've got the Spirit to gather around this teaching. To, uh, to, to, develop, to devote themselves to fellowship, enjoying other Christians' company, the breaking of bread, which I take to be the Lord's Supper, and the prayers. In other words, the Spirit 
inspires the Scriptures, go and make disciples. And then when the Spirit gets a hold of people, what do they do? They, they almost instinctively, before we have First and Second Timothy, these letters we call the pastoral epistles that tell us how to build a church, they instinctively do church. They gather as God's people because God's people love each other. They love the teaching. They love to remember Jesus. And so the Spirit is work in the Scriptures, the Spirit's work in power, and then I want you to notice the Spirit's work in the throes of providence. The Spirit's work in the throes of providence. It's been noted by many that after the first Christians are saved and they're told to gather all the nations, they stay in Jerusalem. They don't go all over the place. But persecution in the providence of God, is used to scatter them. Uh, in Acts chapter 11, verse, sorry, in Acts chapter 9, we read this, and Saul approved, this is Acts 9.1, and Saul approved as his, that is Stephen's execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church of Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now don't miss these three words. Except the apostles. So the Spirit in His providence moves the Christians out over the region He wants to take for Christ. Everyone except the leaders. It's interesting. And then you get to Acts 11.19. You're still dealing with the same persecution. Acts 11.19. And it says, now those who were scattered, how many apostles were among them? None. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch speaking the Word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists. That's breaking a cultural barrier. They're moving from just the Jews, now the Greek-speaking Jews. Spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus and the hand of the Lord was with them. How many apostles were among them? None. And a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Now, you might think these are conversions out in the Wild West as the Gospel goes all over the place, and so there's no real desire for order. But that's not what we find. We keep reading in... Um, Acts chapter 11, it says, The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Then he realized they needed some of that Pauline goodness, and so he went and got Paul. And Acts chapter 11 says, And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church, and taught a great many people. So, here's the deal. Scripture, go into all nations. God's power, Spirit empowers preaching. Christians gather. They get baptized. They start learning the teaching. Then, providence moves them all out. They're just whispering the Gospel, talking the Gospel, answering questions. People get saved. And they don't just say, hey, let's just do a home Bible study for life. No, the church in Jerusalem sends a leader, a qualified leader, named Barnabas. Barnabas begins to establish the work. Barnabas goes, there's more work here than for one man. He runs out of town for a second and grabs Paul. Paul starts teaching. That's, that's a big man, Barnabas, eh? Should go find someone more gifted than me to come and eclipse my ministry because I care more about this church than about being the top dog. Okay, so the Scripture, the power, providence. Now notice the Spirit works through prophecy to build the church. The Spirit works through prophecy to send people further into the mission field. This is Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Acts chapter 13, verse 1. And there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. 
while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. The Spirit who had inspired the Word of Scripture inspired a word of occasional prophecy that led and directed these two apostles to begin to plant and establish local churches. I'm just going to keep repeating the same things. Spirit's inspiring prophecy. Spirit's inspiring the Scriptures to move the Great Commission. The Spirit is moving Christians to gather into churches. The Spirit is um, moving lay people to preach the Gospel and then leading leaders to establish those lay people in the Gospel. And then the Spirit moves into this new church in Antioch and says, hey, release two of your best leaders and send them out to plant more churches. So we just see the Spirit's constant push for the planting of more and more churches. So what do Paul and Barnabas do? I don't know if you've ever studied this before. We have a pastor in our church, just all he, he, not all he does, he does a lot, but all he does on a particular morning, I think he does usually Tuesday or Wednesday mornings, is he gathers a few guys, and he just does this Bible study over and over and over again, where he walks them through how the churches of the New Testament grew. And this uh, mission trip of Paul and Barnabas is quite striking. It's really worthy of your study. And essentially, and I know you're not going to keep up with all these city names, at least if you have a brain like mine, you won't. But Paul and Barnabas go out and they go to the island of Cyprus. And there they see a Roman proconsul converted. Then they go to Antioch of Pisidia and they make disciples. Acts 13, 13-52. And these disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Then they go to another place called Iconium. Many sided with them, it says in Acts 14, 1-7. Then they made disciples in Lystra. Then in Derbe, through their preaching. So just, just listen to what's happening. You might be thinking, he really wasn't, he was, he wasn't kidding. This is a meandering, all over the place sermon that's not very much profit. So just, you know, try to make of it what you can. What, what was the term, brother? Get all the purchase power you can. Buy it completely. Uh, what, what, whatever I'm trying to give to you here. And so, they go to these places, Antioch, Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, and they're making disciples in all of these places having been sent out as what we would call missionaries, what, what they would call apostles. And then I want you to notice something. This is so, so clear. So just if you couldn't keep any of those city names straight, here it goes. They went through like say six cities and now listen to what they do next. This is so key for understanding sending. Acts 14.21 When they had preached the Gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. They went back to all the cities they'd already been in, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying through many tribulations we must enter the Kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in each church, With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So follow this. The Scripture is pushing for the advancement of the Great Commission. The Scripture is empowering and drawing people to form churches. The Scripture moves providentially, shakes the church up in persecution, and they go out and they plant more churches. The the, the Scripture moves prophetically on Paul and Barnabas to go and plant more churches. And once they've preached and seen people converted in each town, They're not satisfied with just disciples. They go back to each of those towns and give them permanent leadership in the form of elders so that these churches will be established and they will grow and they will be made strong. As our brother Gavin said in the Q&A, what's the greatest enemy of the church? The greatest enemy of the church is the false teaching that arises within it. And here's Paul and Barnabas ensuring that there'll be a protection against that false teaching through elders in every church. Anyone still with me? It's that after lunch special time. It's, it's, it's prime time for listening to preaching. And the food settles in nicely. Okay. So let's try to glean some principles from what we have learned. Here's the first and the most obvious. It is both the will and the work of the Holy Spirit to establish healthy local churches. It is both the will 
and the work of the Holy Spirit of God to establish healthy local churches. His Word commands it. Go make disciples. Baptize them. Teach them. I'll be with you. His very being empowers the formation of local churches in such a way that it could be described as instinctual for Christians who are converted to then gather. The Word is preached in the Spirit's power next to and the hearts that are touched by that Word, those people that devote themselves to the teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread. The Spirit moves them to be and to do church. Then the Father shakes things up with persecution. And what happens? Believers are one. But it's not enough that believers are one. Leaders have to be sent to make sure those believers are established, strengthened. God will save people in all kinds of ways. But He establishes them through qualified leaders. Then, the Holy Spirit moves to send out Paul and Barnabas and they go out making disciples, but they do what very few people do in our day and age. They go back to those disciples and establish them into churches with elders. Since it is so clearly the work of the Spirit to plant and strengthen local churches all over the planet, we should be deeply involved in this work. No church should consider it exempt itself exempt from this calling. It was the calling of the Jerusalem church and God shook them up to make them sure it happened. And then He spoke to the Antioch church to make sure it happened. His commands and these examples make it clear that it is His calling of all churches today. Brothers, I tell you that we try at Emmanuel to plant a church every year. And there's some special circumstance to make that possible for us, but we try to plant churches that plant churches as well. The first church plant we sent out uh, less than 10 years ago planted its first church last year. And when you start to do that stuff in a snowballing manner, you're planting churches who have a vision to plant churches in one lifetime. You will see more churches than you ever dared to dream. And honestly, if we're going to complete the Great Commission and salt and light our evil nations and see Christ glorified among every tribe, tongue, and nation, we all need to be sending and supporting those who will follow the Spirit's lead and plant more churches. The second principle I want to point out is that churches can start in a number of different ways. Churches can start in a number of different ways. The first church in Jerusalem was started out of one powerful sermon. That's how that church started. The church in Antioch started when a bunch of lay people were running from persecution and they couldn't start, stop talking about the Gospel. The churches in Lystra and Derby were started by a missionary team that had a very set strategy. You see what's going on here? Sometimes you might be looking around at the church scene and going, man, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on. Things don't seem to be happening in one neat and orderly way. Welcome to church history. God has continually been moving by His Spirit to plant churches and to start churches in very diverse and sometimes unusual ways. And I stress this because it's biblical and because it might help us to see a few more opportunities. Do a few families get saved watching a Paul Washer video near Leduc or Devon? There might be a chart of a church plant there. Do you get a chance to preach in a united church somewhere and a handful of people get saved? There might be a church there. Do you send out a missionary team who preaches to various towns or various tribes? Each of these gatherings should be supported and cared for until they are a mature church. Be wide open to things starting messy, but then be clear about this next principle. Though things may start in crazy and messy ways, it is the will of God to order them. It is the will of God to order them. The third point I want to make is that churches are strengthened through apostolic ministry. Churches are strengthened through apostolic ministry. Now let me make my point biblically, and then I'll come back and add all the nuance needed to use the word apostle today. First, notice in Acts chapter 2 that it is an apostle whose preaching starts the church. And then the apostles strengthen the church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching after Peter the apostle had preached a sermon. Then in Acts chapter 11, a group of regular old non-apostle believers lead others to Christ. But what happens? Apostles are sent to help things out. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent 
Barnabas. Now this word sent, when it speaks of sending Barnabas, is the word ex apostello, to send someone off to a locality or on a mission. Now some of you are sharp theologians, and you might be saying, you can't say that the word sent means Barnabas was an apostle. Okay, I agree. But I can say that Barnabas was an apostle because Acts 14.4 says Barnabas was an apostle. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd. Acts 14.14 Paul and Barnabas are both regarded as apostles. James, the brother of Jesus, is clearly called an apostle. The messengers sent out that we hear of in Corinth are called apostles. Clearly the word apostle can be applied to more than just the twelve. And some who are not what we might call Scripture writing apostles. Now, theologians have wrestled with this fact in multiple ways. They've wrestled with the use of the word apostle in the New Testament in multiple ways. Wayne Grudem, a continuationist Baptist theologian, summarizes the New Testament emphasis by saying, the word apostle can be used in a broad or narrow sense. In a broad sense, it just means messenger or pioneer missionary. But in a narrow sense, the most common sense in the New Testament, it refers to a specific office. Apostle of Jesus Christ. In common language, you'll often hear people talk about big A apostles and little a apostles. Big A apostles are writing books like Galatians. Little a apostles are going out like Barnabas did to strengthen churches. Sam Waldron a Reformed Baptist theologian who's definitely not a continuationist, not a continuationist bone in Sam Waldron's body, speaks of making a distinction between apostles of Jesus Christ, those sent by the churches, and apostles, and sorry, apostles of Jesus and apostles of the churches. Those sent by Jesus directly, those sent by the churches. Waldron argues, following Ritterboss, that an apostle is a sent one who bears legal authority to represent the one who sent him. Jesus was an apostle of the Father. Paul was an apostle of Jesus. But then Waldron continues, we must make a distinction in the New Testament between those who were apostles of Christ, big A apostles, and those who were simply apostles of the churches, small a apostles. Apostles of Christ are Christ's direct legal representatives Apostles of the churches are the church's legal representatives and only indirectly and in a lesser sense the representatives of Christ. You can see apostles of the churches, says Waldron, in Philippians 2.25 and 2 Corinthians 8.23. In the sense of apostles of the churches, apostles do exist today. A missionary sent out by a local church would be an apostle of that church. A representative sent out to a meeting of an association of churches is another example of an apostle of that church. Such persons are apostles of the church that sent them. They are not, however, official apostles in the sense of being an apostle of Christ. Now, we are getting technical. And it is. What time is it? It's five minutes to four. And we had that glorious Mediterranean lunch. We're getting controversial and technical. And I would assert to you that our failure to think about these things this clearly is why the mission field and the church planting movement is such an absolute mess. And so I'm asking for your attention. Because literally, churches are being planted all over the world that haven't thought about these things. And you literally have churches sending out people who have no business being sent and not thinking clearly about what's going on. And that's why I'm trying to think through this as clearly as I'm trying to right now. So, Spirit inspires. Spirit, God the Father shakes things up. Lay people go out. But it's always getting strengthened. It's always getting strengthened. It can happen and start in any kind of crazy way you imagine. But there's always a desire for established churches to then go and bring order through apostolic missionary, ministry. Now, some of you are like, I don't like this word apostle. I way prefer the word missionary. I have bad news for you. It's, it's quite bad, so brace yourself. Missionary is just the Latin word for apostle. <laughs> so I don't know where you're going. But at the end of the day, we have to have some category 
for those we send. And I would suggest to you that we're best served by using the biblical categories. I uh, knew a man who was a minister uh, for many years. He was a pastor in the American South for many years. And then uh, God called him to China where he did a church planting movement, sometimes equipping pastors in caves. He was just uh, really used in amazing work. And he was moving from place to place to place, establishing the local churches. And he said to someone at one point, when you look at the New Testament, what do they call me? And if you say pastor... You're just confusing categories. He was doing small a apostle work. Now, at an earlier point in the formation of the sermon, I, had a little, I made a little funny joke where I said, my sermon, I just want you to know it's an 18-point font, except when I write apostle, then I put it back down to 11-point font. I, I just mean the smallest a you can imagine, okay? If it helps you, it's a small m, just missionary. Little m, tiny little m. But here's the thing. If Waldron is right, and I think he is, that what we send out are people who actually represent us, that are going to form churches that ought to be like us, then you don't just send the 19-year-old guy who's willing. You send a fully formed, qualified man. I was talking to a seasoned missionary in Southeast Asia this past year, and he said, he said to me, Ryan, it's, it's, getting, it's getting bad over here. He said, the average missionary in my denomination when I first came to the field 30-some years ago was a 30-year-old seminary graduate with seven years of ministry experience. And he said, the people they're sending us now uh, have one or two seminary classes under their belt. They're newly married and their marriages are a mess. And what if churches were to step back and say, you know what, maybe we need to send less, but better. Maybe the people we ought to send ought to be... Come on! You've got a guy who you wouldn't entrust to be a pastor of your church and you're going to send him to the middle of the Muslim world? It's madness. It would be like your medical... It would be like the medical doctors of our world saying, we're going to take all the first year medical students and send them to the hospitals with the least technology. Oh, that'll be great. That'll be fantastic. So, what I'm saying to you is this. God starts little works where people are converted in all kinds of different ways in the New Testament. But then that work is always established by the leaders of other local churches. And eventually, that work is completed when leaders are able to be appointed in those local churches themselves. Do you see the sequence? All kinds of people can get saved. And guess what? When people get saved, they get all kinds of wild ideas. You know, you get the biker who gets saved. He walks up to you and says, hell of a pastor sermon. You know, people get saved in all kinds of different ways. And that's wonderful. But then what's needed is for the churches around them to send leadership. And not for those churches to then have overbearing leadership forever, but eventually to appoint elders in those towns so that those churches have established leadership forever or as long as God would be pleased to use that local congregation. Are you with me? I'm going to need more than that. Okay. There we go. Okay, so, if what I'm saying is true about small a apostles and several things follow that are vital to sending, first of all, as much as it's popular to say, not everyone is a missionary. Everyone can do evangelism, any member of the church may be used to share the gospel and see a church more, and that happens. That's glorious. But those sent out to strengthen those churches are apostles. You can translate it with a small a. You can translate it into a Latin make it missionary. You can do whatever you want. But they are legal representatives of one who, who sent them. Not every Christian is someone the church should send out to form other churches, to appoint elders in every town. And if this were laid hold of, then the mission field would look very different. Listen, it's my experience that on the mission field, you get some of the most zealous, loving, devoted to Christ people. 
And many have no idea what they're doing. They've never been part of a local church, and they have no idea how to establish a local church. So when we think about church planting in Cochrane, we th- when we think about church planting in Kathmandu, we should be thinking, how do existing leaders go to start and strengthen and establish local works that then can raise up their own indigenous leadership so that the churches that are there don't give the gospel a black eye in another country. They don't become hotbeds of heresy waiting to be tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine. But they actually become stable, mature representatives of Jesus Christ. If you wouldn't want Him leading your church, don't send Him anywhere else. And I say this to young men. I said this to young men this week. If you want to be sent by a church, put yourself under the kind of pastors you want to be like. Make sure they actually have the courage to tell you if they don't think you should be sent. And sit there until they send you. And God would do mighty things through this. Now how do we practice these kind of things at Emmanuel Baptist Church? Have we put these things into practice? First of all, I just want to say some unusual things about our congregation because there are some things that there's been some encouraging numbers at our church, but they have an unusual shape. We are 10 minutes away from one of the largest seminaries that's ever existed in the history of Christendom. That's a crazy situation. It's just a very weird, weird, we're weird. We're a weird church. We have weird, weird things going on. So there's, so there's, there's certain dynamics there. The principles we're operating by, I think, can operate in any church. And I'm actually seeing them implemented in different churches we're planted. But the situation we're in is unique. And so it should be, everything I say should be taken with a grain of salt. But I think there's some encouraging things. How do we practice this at Emmanuel Baptist Church? First of all, we instruct the congregation that it is our privilege to be involved in the church planting mission of the Great Commission. We instruct them. And our church is just like anywhere else. We, we get excited about the Great Commission and then we don't like the people leaving. My daughter, when she was young, she said, Dad, our church is so transient. And then you just make it worse by making calling people to leave. And I, I didn't like hurting her little heart, but it's the biblical thing to do. And so we, need to, we teach things like 3 John, where the apostle is telling another congregation how good they did at supporting some missionaries his congregation had originally sent and how they ought to send them on. He says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like this so we may be fellow workers for the truth. How many of you are going to get to go to Indonesia and be missionaries? Probably very few. How many of you will get to go to Cameroon and be missionaries? Probably very few. And Keith Green's whole idea that everybody ought to be going on missions except if God calls you to stay is ludicrous. It's silly. Most Christians are going to bloom right where they're planted, and that's not a problem. But when we send, we become fellow workers with the truth. I'm a fellow worker with a dear brother of mine who's working in Mozambique. I'm a fellow worker with a dear brother of mine who's doing work in Sumatra right now. I am a fellow worker with them. I'm not there. I'm rarely there. But I am a fellow worker with them. A fellow worker with my brother Jay Ingram who's planting a church in what would be like Airdrie to Louisville in Shelbyville, Kentucky. We teach that to our congregation. We, you pastors who are here, you preachers, should teach your congregation that no matter how difficult it is, no matter how cash-strapped you are, no matter how many needs there are in your local body, I promise you there are needier places than where you are, and we need to send hundreds and thousands of churches to the ends of the world. And every individual congregation must do their part. Not must, gets to do their part. Gets to get to be participants in the advance of King Jesus' mission. It's wonderful. Second, we try to raise up more 
than we need. We try to raise up more leaders than we need. Let me just speak to this very pragmatically. And then I'll speak to it biblically. I find that very often pastors, when they see a vision for raising up leaders, if the Holy Spirit's going to call Paul and Barnabas, you've got to have a Paul and Barnabas. What they do is they grab one or two guys in the church. And then they spend a couple of years investing in these one or two guys. And what happens? Well, one of the guys takes a job in some other town. And the other guy flakes out and turns out to be the kind of guy you'd never want to make a pastor. And what's left with the original pastor? He's back at square zero. And I'm always like, take seven or eight, take nine or ten. Get as many as you can and train all of them. What will emerge is that some will be faithful. But start bigger, start bigger, and then watch who thrives. Watch who does well. And those are the people that become your future elders. Those are the people who wind up becoming your future sent-off ones. Listen to this command that the Apostle Paul gives to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2. And it's a command that reminds us of the responsibility that leaders have to raise up other leaders. What would you think of, of a group of engineers that never gave engineering internships? What would you think of a, of a medical practice that didn't train up new doctors? you think you're going to be dead in a generation. And yet it's, it's normal for churches to have no secession plan, no raising up of other pastors. A solo pastor, I'm being faithful, hopefully someone will come from a seminary eventually after I die and take over. Guess what? It doesn't work. Very often the church dies. Very often the ministry goes a completely different direction. But listen to this verse and think what would happen if we obeyed it. What you've heard from me, Paul says to Timothy, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Do you notice there's a four-generation sequence going on there? What you've heard from me, I'm Paul. What you've heard from me, Timothy, pass to other men who will be able to pass and teach to others also. That's four generations. Now, in my ministry, I've had the privilege of visiting a widow, she's gone to be with the Lord now, who she had known a man who fought in the American Civil War. One time she, I was over at her house speaking with her and she said, let me show you something. And she, she pulled out a painting and it was a man in a in a, in a Civil War uniform, and she said, I knew this man. If you make that leap 12 times, you're at Jesus. Church history is very short. I think it was Michael Horton that pointed out that all the stuff about history being billions and billions and billions and billions of years old gives us the idea that history is this vast thing that you can't even fathom. Not the case. If you just do that leap I made, Three times you're at Martin Luther. Church history, we have the potential. The potential is in this room to be reaching the year 2,223. Now, I'm all about being missionaries to other countries, but I'm really big into being a missionary to the future. It's kind of got an exotic ring to it, too. Okay? So we, we want to be reaching the places we will never be. We will not go there, we will be forgotten. But the gospel will not be forgotten. And we're called to invest in that future generation. Remember, it was, a, it, was a, it was scandalous that Hezekiah said, oh well, the problems will come, but not in my day. We want to be raising up the next generation. So take as many as you can and teach them. Brian Croft has a handy way of saying this. He speaks of testing, training, affirming, and sending. That's what we should be doing with the men who aspire to ministry in our midst. Testing, training, affirming, and sending. How do you test? You give them opportunities to teach. Give them opportunities to lead services. Give them opportunities to go with you on a visit. Give them opportunities to lead an evangelism team or to, uh, to lead some ministry of the church, a Sunday school class. If they don't do well, it's not failure. It just means they'd be better in real estate. And that's okay. Because being a pastor is not the top of spirituality. It's a distinct gift within the body of Christ. It's not failure not to be a pastor. And so we want to test. In addition to testing, we want to train. 
in our particular church, we have a three-year a training program. We meet every Friday morning at 6 a.m. That just weeds out a whole swath of people. <laughs> and in year one, I just teach them Romans for nine months, and they preach. Year two, we do the Baptist Catechism, Baptist Statements of Faith, along with various pertinent debates that happen in evangelicalism. They preach a couple more times. There's a little. There's a couple. There's there's less of them by year two too. Kind of like first year of medical school. How many can we get out? Right? By the third year, we kind of do finishing school. What's our view of ecclesiology? What's our view of counseling? What's our view of preaching? Right down to the details. What happens at the end of the three years is, guess what? When we ask one of these guys to be an elder, I give them 60 questions. They have to answer it in 15 to 30 pages. You know what happens when I read those? I go, I like this guy. I could work with him. We think a lot alike. Because there's a like-mindedness cultivated by teaching the Scriptures. Now, you might be thinking, that sounds so crazy, that's so big, I could never do this. Well, listen, I didn't start there. I just started by reading a book with some guys in a group we called Sandwiches and Shepherding on a Wednesday night. Did that for a year, and then we started developing something more formal. Some of you pastors, if you just took the, the ten most formative books that have happened in your life and read them with a couple of guys or five or six guys over the course of two or three years. That's a starting point. You want to test, train, and then, with the participation of the congregation, affirm. When there are men who should be elders, who should be leaders, then they ought to have hands laid on them and they ought to be set apart as future leaders. And here's where the congregation plays a role. The congregation should be sitting there saying to the elders, that guy's no, he does not have it. Not have it. You, you're all enamored with him, but it's not the case. Or they need to be saying, I grow under his ministry. He is profiting me. He'd be good here. He'd be good in Cochrane. He'd be good in Kathmandu. Here's one of the major myths and missions. That what's happening in Cochrane is so fundamentally different than what's happening in Kathmandu. It's just church planting everywhere you go. It's just preaching the Word, singing the Word, rightly administering the ordinances, discipling, encouraging. It's the same all over. And then, once a person is affirmed, we send them. Now, in our, in our context, that can look different. Sometimes we'll have people who we view as elder qualified, the language we used to like to use, and, and they go off to the mission field and they minister somewhere different than us. In that case, we lay hands on them and send them out. And then if they're interested in it, we, we get on a Zoom call with them once a month for the rest of their life. We try to go visit them on the field about once every term. We invite them back home once a year if they're able to just sit under the Word together and fellowship together. We just want to keep affirming, keep encouraging, be available for phone calls to counsel them in different spaces and different times. Other times, we have guys who we think are going to be pastors at our congregation. So what do we do? We lay hands on them and they join our elder board. And do we agree on everything? No. But we agree on the shared values that elders need to make profitable decisions. And so, here's what I'm saying. We need to be aware that the Holy Spirit wants to send and plant and strengthen churches all over the world. Amen? We need to be aware of what He's doing. That he, he sometimes shakes up situations. He maybe makes you lose a job, makes you move somewhere else, makes you share the Gospel, and then a little church starts. And what do you do? You're like, I'm not ready to plant a church. You call the healthiest church you know and say, get someone over here. And if they're attuned to the Spirit, they send someone. And they begin to establish that. And the end goal is not a permanent reliance on the mother church, but elders in each congregation. And this happens when the church sends out, I'll try to be unoffensive, missionaries. Very small m. They send out these missionaries who will then establish these churches in the same doctrine as the mother church. The same teaching. So that, so that you don't kind of plant churches with your nose held. Well, Jesus is being preached, but I hate everything else about that church. I wouldn't go there, but we, we do, we're involved in missions. No. If you think the practices here are for the good of souls then take those practices elsewhere. If you think the Word is able to build a church here, help the Word build a church elsewhere. 
And this can only be done when elders have some plan. doesn't have to be my plan, but some plan to teach, to train, to affirm, and to send. And beloved, if we would practice these things, we might be shocked just how much God can do in a lifetime. Just how many churches there might be all over places where we say, oh, there's no good churches there. There's no good churches there. May God help us to do something about that sad reality. Let's pray. Oh, i got to say a couple things before I'm done. One, to the elders of Calvary Grace, thank you, and I love you. And it's, you're so encouraging. Your faithfulness to the Word is so encouraging, and I appreciate every time I've been invited, and it's just a delight to be here. To Crystal Humphrey, oh man, Crystal rolls out the red carpet. She has just anticipated my every need and made being here so pleasant. I don't know if she can hear me or if she's even here. I'm seeing someone point. Thanks, Crystal. I really appreciate all you've done. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word, for Your help, for Your grace. I pray that everyone here would be deeply shaped by the Gospel. By <laughs> We'd be fearless in converting people or doing what we can to see people converted. We'd be faithful in private and public, on the mission field in our homes. Lord God, we pray that You would use us to send to the ends of the earth, to send nearby and to send far away, and to send well. We pray that You would use this church and the churches represented in this meeting to send good leaders to establish strong works where Christians are not tossed to and fro, but they're strengthened. And Lord, I pray that You'd do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.